All right. So we find ourselves today in this glorious text, uh, which describes for us our relationship with Jesus, where he is presented as the good shepherd, and we as the church are presented as his sheep. That's today. Uh, I, I think the majority of us are familiar with this concept. Uh, we've heard this before. Even if you haven't been in church uh, before, or maybe you're, you know, you, maybe you grew up in the church, but you've been away from a long time, I think we've all heard this, this idea that Jesus is the shepherd um, and we are his sheep. But even so, even, even though that's the case, I would venture to guess that most of us don't have a lot of personal experience with sheep. Uh, maybe other than checking out the occasional petting zoo, okay? Uh, my least favorite place in the world to go. <laughs> uh, but sheep are mentioned all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, around 400 times, in fact, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a good number of those references uh, that refer to sheep are a descriptor, actually a direct descriptor of us, God's people. And you certainly have to wonder, maybe you've never wondered, I wonder often actually, uh, why? Why sheep? Why are we described as sheep? Couldn't we be like flying eagles or powerful lions, right? You don't see a lot of team mascots with sheep, right? The mighty sheep are coming into town, right, to go after. No, you don't see that. But this is how God describes us, how we're described in the scriptures. And there's an obvious reason for that. And it's because of our dependency. It's because you and I are utterly dependent on the shepherd. We are not smart spiritually. Okay? Okay? We need him. And that, of course, ties directly into our weakness as well. That like sheep, again, spiritually speaking, we are defenseless. We are directionless. This is who we are. Left on our own, we actually have no hope. We have no sense of meaning. We have no sense of purpose on our own. And of course, this is very different from how we are typically taught to think about ourselves in this world, right? Uh, for example, every single one of us in this room, all of us began as needy babies, needy children, right? But eventually, we are expected to grow up, to become an adult which means we're expected to become independent, right? We glorify that, we celebrate that, independence. That's an expectation on each and every one of us. But understand that sheep always remain dependent. Doesn't matter how old they get. For their whole lives, they are in need of their shepherd. And of course, this is who we are as well. We are spiritually dependent. We need guidance direction. We need care. We need a good shepherd, which makes our text today really, really good news. Now, I, want, I do want to say really briefly that there are several things that I believe that have confused this, this relationship or imagery that we have of Jesus or with Jesus as him as the shepherd and us as the sheep, that somewhat Maybe you could say even like taint the shepherd imagery, if you will. And the first thing, at least modern day, that hurts this concept is modern art. Okay? And I realize I risk somewhat offense by saying that. But modern art, you've seen it, has the European Jesus with the golden blonde hair. He's got a perm, you know? He's got the curls, the soft curls, right? And then that Jesus, right, is hugging this cuddly little lamb, right? It's all cute and precious, right? Tender, sentimental, right? I was looking at our stained glasses and seeing, we don't have that one. Um, but you've seen it, okay? And because that's the typical picture of Jesus, when we think about him as our shepherd, we forget, actually, it's very natural for us to forget that in the time of Jesus, a shepherd was actually a warrior. They were strong. They were courageous. Uh, being a shepherd was a tough and rugged job. Shepherds were, you might say it this way, shepherds were manly men, okay? All right? Think about King David for a second. 
We are told in the scriptures, we know he was a shepherd. And what are we told that he did? Right? We are told before he goes out and kills Goliath, this giant, right, this teenage boy, he's not afraid at all. And why is he not afraid? He's not afraid because he's a shepherd. And as a shepherd, we are told that he was actually out killing lions and bears with his hands, okay? This is the shepherd, not a guy with a perm, okay? This rugged, tough guy, right? So a lot of modern art has sort of tainted that image for us, I think. But the other problem that we have when we approach this text is that the way that people shepherd today, modern-day shepherds, actually differs very, very drastically differs from how it was done back in the first century, the time of Jesus and even before the time of Jesus. So today, for example, or if you were to go out and see a shepherd, what you'll likely see are herd dogs, right? And those herd dogs and the shepherd and the shepherd is behind and the herd dogs are, are driving the sheep from behind, right? You, you could YouTube this, right? The, the sheep are sort of pushed in the right direction. Um, They aren't led. But in ancient Israel, what we know is that the shepherd went before the sheep, always. He leads the sheep. He goes out in front of the sheep, and the sheep follow him. This was universally understood, and it's the image that John's readers would have in mind whenever they heard about a shepherd. They would think about leading, they would think about guiding, they would think about protecting, they would think about strength when they heard the word shepherd. And it doesn't mean God isn't more than that. He is gentle, right? he is tender, he is caring, he's loving, he's kind. But these are the sort of things that would come to mind for the Jews when they would hear about the shepherd. We also know that for them, shepherd was a familiar name for God. We see this all the way back in the time of Jacob. Uh, Jacob, remember, Abraham's grandson. What does Jacob say when he is dying? He's on his deathbed. He's going to bless his sons. It's Genesis chapter 48. He says this, God, he's about to die. He says, God has been my shepherd all my life, he says. And then he goes on to bless his son, Joseph. Or David, we see in the Psalms, refers to God as a shepherd Time and time again, Psalm 77, Psalm 78, Psalm 80, or of course the famous Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And of course, we also see in the Old Testament, there's a promise of a good shepherd to come. We often quote this around Christmas time. It's found in Micah chapter 5. We learn that there will be a Savior who is going to be born in Bethlehem. And what's said about that Savior to be born in Bethlehem in verse 4? And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Well, now here in our text today, we see Jesus comes as that shepherd, as the promised one to come. He's good in the sense that he is the true shepherd. It actually could be translated that way if you prefer, the true shepherd, Um, Different from the false teachers and leaders of the day, Jesus is a noble shepherd. He's a worthy shepherd. He's a model shepherd, if you will. And then the last thing that I want us to say, or want to say before we jump into John 10 here, is that it's really important for us to remember what just took place before this in John chapter 9. Because the two passages of scripture are clearly connected. So let me remind you, if you forgot or if you weren't here, what happened really quickly in John chapter 9? Well, what we learned there very simply is that there was this blind man, and this blind man was given sight and becomes a follower of Jesus, right? It's a miracle that only God could do. Only the Messiah, only the Savior, we're told all throughout the Old Testament, could make a blind man see. Jesus comes, he does that. It's incredible. But what's the response to this by the Pharisees? How do the religious leaders of the day respond? Well, we know they take that blind man and they throw him out of the temple. Do you remember that? They, they cast him aside. They abandon him. They, they take him out of the place of, of worship. And at that, what is Jesus' response? What does Jesus do? Well, he goes out and finds the man. He searches for him. Why? Because that was one of Jesus' sheep. 
And that's what good leaders, that's what good shepherds do. See, Jesus wasn't like the other religious leaders of the day. Jesus set himself apart, which becomes all the more clear now as we open up John chapter 10. So let's get into this text now. And through the first part of John 10, I want to show you four truths about our good shepherd. Four truths about our good shepherd that hopefully will lead us to a greater love for Jesus. That's my goal for today. That's my prayer for today, that you would leave this place having a greater love for Jesus. By the way, if this passage doesn't make you love Jesus, something's wrong, okay? I failed, or your heart did. (laughs) So let's begin. Here's the first truth truth today. First truth, Jesus knows, calls, and leads his sheep. Jesus knows, calls, and leads his sheep. I gave you four points today. I cheated because the first two points have three inside of them, all right? But I didn't want to give you 10 points today. Jesus knows, calls, and leads his sheep. Or you might just summarize it this way, that Jesus has a relationship with his sheep. You could say it that way as well. So this is how chapter 10 starts. Finally, we start reading the text again. Truly, truly, I say to you, for real, for real, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So we get the picture here that there are some people who who sneak into the sheepfold. Sheepfold, don't be confused, sheepfold is what we now often call a sheep pen. The sheep pen, the place you keep the sheep. Now, After the service, you grab lunch, and if you were to go home today and you saw somebody climbing into your window, that would not be a good sign, would it? That's the idea here. That's the feeling here. These people aren't coming invited to the sheep pen. They're not trying to enter through the door. They're sneaking into where they do not belong. And so again, Jesus has in mind here these false religious leaders that he's been dealing with in John 7, 8, and 9. They aren't true shepherds. They are sons of their father, the devil, he has said. They're not genuine in their faith. They aren't leading people to life. They're actually killing, stealing, and destroying the people of God, verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. So here's the background. Cultural context here matters. What Jesus most likely, almost certainly has in mind here are these community sheep pens that existed in the first century, particularly in Israel. These community pens. You see, every family didn't necessarily have their own personal sheep pen. They couldn't afford it. Or maybe they just didn't have enough sheep. And so families would literally, they would come together, join together in this agreement and collectively buy a pen. And then on top of that, they would hire a gatekeeper to stay with the sheep, to watch the sheep, to protect the sheep. And so we are told when one of the owners of the sheep, the shepherds, when they show up to the pen to collect or to gather their sheep, what would they do? They would just go to the door, right? because they own it. They own the sheep. They go to the door. They go to the gatekeeper that they hired. And of course, what would happen? He would do the right thing, open the door. And then we're told that the shepherd would call out to his sheep. That's the next verse. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. What's Jesus saying? The sheep would go with their shepherd. This is important. The sheep would go to their shepherd because they recognized the voice of their shepherd. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep. I love this. He calls his own sheep by name, we're told. Um, I was going to show you like a four minute YouTube video right now, insert right now, but didn't have the time and I didn't want to put on our tech team logistics. I asked Paul even right before this, can you do it last minute? Don't do that to me. So I'm not going to. But you can YouTube this. You should. It's hilarious. Shepherd calling his sheep. And what you'll find, this guy 
probably somewhere in Scotland, it looks like, and there's this tourist group, okay, of people all from all the world, and there's these sheep way out in this pasture, and the first tourist shows up, and he tells them, try to call the sheep to you. So they go up to the, the gate, and they stand there, and they're, they got their mouth like this, and they just try these unique voices. It's funny. So like, like, seriously, like that, right? And then the sheep are just heads down, every sheep head down, eating in the grass. So then they go to the, she leaves, and the next guy comes in, and he tries something like this. You know, he's like doing all these things, like monkey sounds, whatever. Anything to try to get the, the sheep attention. Screaming at them, nothing, right? And then the shepherd with the wool hat on, he looks like a shepherd, you see him, you know? He's got the big puff jacket, right? And he comes, and he does this weird call. He's like this. And all of a sudden, after like five seconds, you see the sheep. Every one of them, just all their heads, here to here. Eyes, big, wide, right? And then they all start running down the hill. Hundred of them running down the hill. They recognize the voice of their shepherd. It's still happening today, right? And of course, the spiritual implication of this is that Jesus, of course, Jesus not only knows us by name, he calls us by name. And those who know him, who have a relationship with him, we follow his voice in the same way. We go after him when he calls. And of course, we see this with Jesus, don't we? Think of Zacchaeus, for example, little Zacchaeus, sweet little Zacchaeus up in the tree. You know the story, the song. Jesus is teaching. He looks up at him in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. And what happens? Zacchaeus obeys. He follows Jesus. To Lazarus, he says, we'll see this soon. Lazarus, he's dead. Lazarus is dead. To Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus obeys. He follows. Or after his resurrection, Jesus calls Mary by name. And she recognizes him and follows. And of course, this is a beautiful picture of what we have with Jesus, isn't it? We recognize the voice of Jesus through his word and by the spirit. We, We hear his voice and he leads us, guides us, And once again, this is in great contrast to the history of Israel who had so many false shepherds. Perhaps the best example we have of this in the scriptures is Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, interesting chapter of scripture. The entire chapter is dealing with shepherds. And at the beginning of that chapter, we see that God rebukes the false shepherds of that day, followed by saying, I personally, you have failed. So I personally will shepherd them, and in that I will send the good shepherd to them. Look at what God says in Ezekiel 34. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So you see, these shepherds of the day, they were neglecting their primary responsibility, feeding the sheep. That's primarily what shepherds do. Shepherds feed their sheep. They're not there to pet the sheep. They're there to feed them. He says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. This was the sad state of Israel. They had really bad, bad leaders, poor shepherds who were not helping the people at all. They were only concerned about helping themselves. But contrast that with Jesus or or contrast that to how pastors even today are supposed to lead. They care for the weak. They help the sick. They seek the lost. Jesus is the good shepherd. He does not lead with force. He never brutalizes his flock. He feeds the flock. He loves the flock. He knows the flock. He knows them intimately, in fact, and they know him. 
And this is what salvation ultimately is, is it not? Salvation is about intimately knowing Jesus. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, oh, that I may know him more. Jesus says later in John 17, this is eternal life. This is salvation, that we know the one true God and that we know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus calls his sheep. They hear his voice. They follow him and they know him. Well, then Jesus expounds a, expounds a bit more on this idea of leading out the sheep. He says, when he has brought out his own, all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So this is how the shepherd leads us. See it there. He doesn't come from behind us and, and drive us in the direction he wants us to go. He doesn't come from behind us and, and whip us in the right direction, right? He isn't driving the sheep at all, but he leads out in front of his sheep with his word. God leads us by his word. It's an amazing picture, not just of discipleship, or sorry, salvation, which we had before, but now an amazing picture of discipleship. He goes before us. He actually lays out the path for us. All we need to do is listen to him and then choose to follow him. That's discipleship. It's really that easy. And by the way, that's the mark of a sheep, the mark of a disciple. They know God's voice and they follow. And beyond that, verse five, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. So he says, the true sheep stays behind the shepherd. They know their place. They know what's good for them. They know what's best for them. They trust the shepherd. They trust his voice, so they choose to follow him. But also we see here that true sheep will not follow any other way. See that? It's not that one day I follow the shepherd, and then the next day I get to follow myself. It's not one day I follow Jesus, and then I get to follow my own whatever, another relationship, or a family member, or right, another philosophy. No. The strangers here represent the false teachers, Jesus is saying, my sheep know to only follow after my voice. They know me. They know the true gospel. They're able to discern the gospel, and they run from all other ways. And then John caps all of this section by saying, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Go figure. By the way, this sentence here could be said about the whole first, ch chapters, uh, first 10 chapters of John. <laughs> it kind of sums it up nicely, doesn't it? Every time Jesus would use an analogy or some expression to teach the people, we're told the people did not understand, particularly the Jews, the religious leaders. But now we know why they didn't understand, right? We're told right here. It wasn't because they spoke a different language. It wasn't because they were from a different cultural context. We're told why they don't listen. We're told why they don't understand. It's because they weren't his sheep. They don't belong to him. Jesus's sheep hear his voice and they get it. They comprehend. They understand. They know him. But these people were not his sheep and therefore they do not understand time and time again. So that's the first truth that we learn about Jesus, our good shepherd. He has a relationship with his sheep. He knows them. He calls them. He leads them. Second, we find this truth about our good shepherd, that Jesus provides security, freedom, and sustenance for his sheep. Jesus provides security, freedom, and sustenance for his sheep. Look with me at verse 7. He then says to the people, truly, truly, for real, for real. I say to you, it really means for real, for real. You always laugh, but it's true. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So that's interesting, isn't it? Jesus goes from being the shepherd to now saying he's the door. But let's be clear, uh, Jesus isn't mixing metaphors here. We just have to understand the context. There's a reason these two are together. There's a reason I'm teaching them together. I'm the good shepherd, I'm the door, they go together. 
we have to understand the context. You see, there were times, there were times when the sheep herds with the shepherd would need to travel for a number of circumstances. They would need to leave the community pen. And when you were out, say in the wilderness, out in the desert, particularly when nightfall was coming, the shepherds would, of course, have the responsibility of finding a place to stay, of finding pasture for the sheep, finding a place for them to eat, finding a safe place for them to sleep. And so what they did almost always was they would build these temporary structures. Okay? So imagine this stage, if you will, is this sheep pen that I have built. I couldn't build a sheep pen to save my life, but let's assume, okay? This is my sheep pen. And around all the sides, it is closed, okay? Every single side, it is closed, except for one place, one place. And let's say that entrance is between these two stands. This is the only opening in the entire sheep pen. They would build these types of temporary structures. And then what would happen is the the shepherd was known to sleep at the entrance of that sheepfold. And so you literally could not get into the sheep pen because what was happening is the, the, the shepherd was laying down and sleeping in that place. I'm debating whether or not to do that right now. Okay, should I get down or not? I don't know if I'll be able to get back up. Someone have to help me and I might crease the J's. So I'm not going to get down there. So <laughs> I'm not going to do it. All right, some of you get that, some of you don't. Ask someone later. Um, they, would, they, would, they would lay down across that. I'm going to do it. So they would do this. Okay, so the sheep pen, you're going to have to see it. Am I on the camera, Paul? Am I on the camera? All right, so, so, so the sheep pen is around, right? And you would, you would be sleeping here. So the sheep, now the sheep are not very smart, right? So they see this as a door. And so they cannot get out. But also, if something wanted to get in, let's say it's a wolf, tiger, bear, oh my, whatever, you know, Wizard of Oz stuff. They can't get in to where the sheep are because the, the shepherd is literally there in place. He is the door. He's serving as the door. This is what Jesus is, is saying. And so we keep this in mind now, saying, I literally become the door. And then you read verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, those false teachers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, he says. If anyone enters by me, goes through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So what, do, so what we have here first, oh man, I could do, I almost did a whole sermon just on this one. What we have here first is, again, this, this beautiful picture of salvation, And the message is that you actually, you cannot get into the sheepfold. You cannot enter into the sheep pen unless you go through Jesus, he says. And understand how different that message is to what the Jewish people have been hearing. What the Jewish people have been learning. Understand how significant this is. Right? This is going to tie together and you're going to be like, wow. Promise you will. See, we know the Pharisees and the religious leaders found their life and their identity by following the ways of the Torah, by following the ways of the law. And what's interesting is that they actually saw themselves personally, and it was believed about the religious leaders that they were gatekeepers of the law. Which, which means they actually stood in the gap literally between the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and God. They stood as an sort of intermediary between the two. They were acting as doors of righteousness, if you will. You want to know God, you have to go through us. You want to have an intimate relationship with the creator, you, you need to come to us to understand And so now Jesus comes on the scene 
And, and what the leaders are finding and seeing for themselves is that transformation is now happening apart from them. And they don't like that at all. They're furious about that that people are finding God apart from their religion, apart from a relationship with them, like with the blind man. Who did this to you? How could this happen to you? It didn't happen in the temple. We weren't a part of it. So who did that? They can't accept it. The man's life is literally changed, and they hate him for it. And so now Jesus is saying to them, literally when he says he's a door, he says, you think you hold the keys to God. You think you're the door, the pathway to righteousness. You think that you right, control everything. Religion, let me inform you. No, no, no. I am the door, he says. And by the way, this is a very exclusive statement. And as followers of Jesus, we are unapologetic about this statement. Jesus is literally saying, I am the only door. That's it. I'm the only door of the sheep. I'm the only way to a relationship with God. Jesus was the only one, the only door. By the way, there's symbolism here as well. Just as there was only one door into the ark with Noah to be saved from the storm, there was only one door into the tabernacle, there's only one door into the Holy of Holies to get into the presence of God, Jesus now says, I'm the door to salvation. The, the pathway to salvation has always been through one door. And now I've come to be that door. And by the way, once you go through that door, once you go into his presence, once you get into his presence and belong to him, there is security, there is safety. Right? That's the imagery here. That's again why Jesus says it this way. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And then he says, and will go in and out and find pasture. Very important phrase, in and out. See, in Jewish culture, that phrase, in and out, ton of symbolism there. But it was a way of describing a life that is absolutely secure and safe. A life that is free. This will make a lot of sense to you. Think about it this way. We've got a lot of wars happening in our world right now, so you can understand this, I think. If a country is under attack, or a country is at war, what we know is, even especially back that, then, the people were required to stay inside the city walls to remain safe. You cannot leave. There, there's like a mandate on the city. You, you cannot leave because it's not safe for you to go. Right? There's war happening. Missiles are being thrown, bombs, you know, etc. But when a country is at peace, when a people are at peace, the people are free to come and go out of the city walls as they wish, as they desire. Does that make sense? You can, you can leave the city wall if things are good, if things are secure, if things are safe, if you're in a time of peace and not war. You can go in and out freely. And that's the same idea here with Jesus as the door. With Jesus, we are free to go in and out. Jesus as the door means that we are safe and secure. Really what it means is that we are free. Free from what? Free from the bondage of sin free from death, and free from any attacks of the enemy. Right? Don't miss this. It's, it's so good. It means that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that we can roam our world freely. We can go anywhere and everywhere and enjoy God's creation. And we have the right to enjoy it, by the way, with absolutely no fear. Zero fear. Why? Because nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ if he is our shepherd and he is the door. And the final thing I want to say on this is to consider the word pasture here. Consider the word pasture. Jesus' sheep will find pasture, he says, in and out to find pasture. That word pasture, um, it can literally be translated, it maybe should be translated as abundant life or having a rich life. That's why he says in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's contrasting himself to the other religious leaders again. If you follow other paths, if you follow other shepherds, you'll find death. 
But if you follow Jesus, you'll experience the abundant life. That's the message. And of course, I always have to say this. I always have to remind us, this isn't referring to an abundance of material possessions. It's not the point here. It's not the point at all in the text. This is all about salvation. It's all about spiritual freedom. What Jesus is saying is that if you come to me, you will experience satisfaction of your soul. You'll find true and lasting peace. You'll experience everlasting joy, he's saying. This is the abundant life. It's understanding that the creator of the universe has prepared a table for you to sit and dwell with him forever. The abundant life is, is knowing that our Lord will continually fill your cup with his joy and with his grace. The abundant life is the assurance that even though you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though you might go through valley seasons of life, that he is going before you and he is with you. The abundant life is, is resting in the promise that Jesus will meet every single one of your needs, not wants. He will meet every single one of your needs if you will just enter through him as the door. In short, salvation, security, Freedom and spiritual nourishment can only be found in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying by saying that he is the door. Church family, we, please understand today, we are well-fed sheep. And we are well-protected sheep because we have a, a master shepherd. We have a, a skillful shepherd. We have a, a true shepherd, a wise shepherd. Shepherd. Number three, Jesus is committed to his sheep. He's committed to them. Very strong words here follow him saying, I am the door. Powerful words. Jesus says, he follows, I am the door. We're now saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. By the way, Jesus will utter similar words a few more times, and it's to put an emphasis on what, on what makes Jesus' shepherding so unique. Understand that Jesus is a shepherd that not only risks his life, but he's a shepherd who dies, who lays down his life. We'll get to more of that in a minute. But notice now the contrast again between who he is as a shepherd as opposed to the hired hand. We saw a, a contrast before. There are these like wicked shepherds, there's me, and now he goes into this idea of the hired hand and the true shepherd. He says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and, and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You see it there. Why does the hired hand flee? Because they care nothing for the sheep. So, so the picture is pretty clear. Again, cultural context. There were other times where shepherds would need to hire people as fill-ins. Think of them like substitutes. There's a lot of teachers in the room. Substitute teacher. He's got to come in. For whatever reason. Maybe they're on holiday. There's a family emergency. I don't know. Right? But these hired hands are just treating this responsibility as a job. That makes sense, right? Especially if you're a teacher here. Your substitute teacher doesn't care as much about the subject as you do. And maybe not as much about the kids as you do. You have a relationship with them. You know them, right? Maybe they do. Maybe they're a really good substitute. But these hired hands do not. They just treat this as a job. It was a way for them to get paid. They didn't really care about the sheep. By the way, how many of you know, you need to know this, how many of you know there's a very big difference between a calling and a job? There's a very big difference between a calling and a job. Like if you're working, unless you're called to work at a 7-Eleven or CU, so I'm going to overgeneralize here. But if you're working, for example, at a 7-Eleven or a CU, you're not going to risk your life for the slippery machine, okay? Most likely. You're not going to lay your life down for the slurpy machine. People come to rob the shop, right? They want the cash, and they're like, we want the Slurpees, right? Give us all your Slurpees, right? And, and what would you say? Take them, right? 
I'm not going to lay down my life for the slurping machine. You can't have the blue raspberry, you know, Coke, right? Or whatever, slushy. No, take what you want, right? But if you have a calling, if you are the shepherd of a sheep and you view that as a calling, if there's a deep commitment that you will lay down your life for it, by the way, this is a really good word for those of us who are pastors or want to be pastors, by the way. There's a big difference between a calling and a job. Unfortunately, there's some people in our city that treat this as a job. And if the finances weren't there or stopped coming in, they would no longer be here. Right? This is a calling. By the way, if you're in it for the money, you're in the wrong job anyway. Promise you that, okay? This is a calling, Right? Because I, I know that it's different from other jobs. Because if you don't like your job right now, um, what you do, you go home and you contemplate, you think about it, and there's an exit for you, and you have freedom to do that. But for me, personally, I'll get personal for a second, there's been three times in the last nine and a half years I've been in Korea, three where I was almost twice prostrate on the ground before the Lord, weeping in my living room by myself, begging him, for a way out. And I can't. It's not a job. It's a calling. I have to be here. It doesn't matter how bad things get. It doesn't matter how I don't like the way the economy's going or how the 401k is looking or, you know, the city landscape. Oh, all these people who come. Doesn't matter. None of that matters. I'm called here. But it's between me and God. I'm called to be here. I'm called to stand up here. And so I remain. See, I told you I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I told you. Right? It's between, if you want me out, it's between you and God. Right? Right? I'm called. There's a difference. And that's ultimate what Jesus is getting at here as well. So what happens? What happens? Wolves come into the sheep pen. And what happens to the hired hand? What happens to the substitute shepherd? They run. Of course they do. There's wolves coming. Get out of here. Take the sheep. They're not ours anyway. But not the good shepherd. Right? He, he never runs. He never flees. Listen, when, when trials and troubles come your way, and they will, they will. It's not if, it's when. When the wolves come into your life, and they will, we are told that Jesus never abandons you, that he is with you, he is a shepherd who, who loves you, who loves his sheep, which is why King David could say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your, your staff, they, they comfort me, he says. Listen, sheep are dependent on their shepherd their entire lives, and so are we. But that's good news. It's really good news because Jesus is absolutely committed to us. You know, we have, to, we have to be reminded of this. It should be a, a, it's such a grace that Jesus is so much more committed to you than you are to him. Do you know that? It's not, there's no comparison. He's so committed to you if you belong to him. In dark times, in evil days, when dark shadows and valley seasons come, he will hold us fast. He is the good shepherd. And then finally, we learn here that this good shepherd, Jesus died and rose for his sheep. Jesus died and rose for his sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. He repeats himself. I know my own and my own know me. So we have this statement of intimacy here. Notice, by the way, as well, you might even, you could like, Underline that, highlight it. I know my own, my own know me. It's a two-way relationship. That's important. I know the sheep, my sheep know me. He says, just as the father knows me and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There it is again, emphasis. There's so much I could say here, but I have so little time. Actually, the clock has gone red already on me. Shut it off. It's, I'm still gonna keep going. <laughs> but what we learn here. What we learn here is that our relationship with God is profound. Our relationship with God is actually grounded in this, 
wait for this word, intra-Trinitarian relationship, okay? Intra-Trinitarian relationship. That's, that's what it is, so that's why I said it. Otherwise, I'd make it easier, okay? But our relationship with God, our, with God is grounded in the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. You see, we are, we are made in his image. We are also made for relationship with him, and now we're being told that we are able to know God intimately to have relationship with this God that we're created to have relationship with through Jesus. That's the point. And we learn beyond that, that Jesus loves his sheep so much that he actually lays down his life for them. We see that amazing truth again here. It's an unusual love that Jesus has for us, isn't it not? It's an unusual love. Hard to comprehend if we're truly honest with ourselves. We become so numb to this truth, right? Does it even like, does it even perk your interest when I say, do you know Jesus died for you? Some of us, heard that every week. He died for you, right? The shepherd says, I I, I lay down my life for my sheep. It's amazing that Jesus would die for us. But we also must know that to rescue us, to deliver us, to save us, that his death was necessary. See, there are deep consequences for our sin. Our our sin is so severe because it disconnects us from not just our purpose. Our sin is so severe because it not just disconnects us uh, from other people. Our sin is so severe because it actually disconnects us from our creator, God. And so the scriptures tell us again and again, again and again, I could do 14 examples of this. I chose three. That, that Jesus came to die on behalf of us, we're told. That he died instead of us, we're told. And that he died in place of us. That he, he took our place, Paul says, substituted himself for us. Which means, on the one hand, we can say that Christ has died for all. That he is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. But on the other hand, we can also rightly say, as it says here in John 10, that Jesus has laid down his life in particular for his sheep, he says. And we see more about that in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus says, and all of us need this one here, 99% of us. Jesus says, I've got other sheep, but they're not in this fold. I think it's pretty clear, by the way, Jesus is talking about the Gentiles. He's saying, my mission doesn't stop with the Jews. This is brand new information for them. Shouldn't have been, but it is. My death is not just for the Jews. My death is for the whole Gentile world. And again, again, praise God for this truth. Praise God that Jews Jews are not the only ones. Praise God that Jesus included the Gentiles, because that's us. (laughs) Praise God for this verse, because this is about us. There is one flock, one shepherd. That is, there is one church and one way. His name is Jesus. Verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Now, we can't misunderstand this. If you read this in English, it comes across strongly that Jesus is earning the Father's love by dying for us. He says, I'm going to lay down my life for a sheep, and for that reason, the Father loves me. That's how it reads in English, but that's not true. That's not how it should read. Jesus was not earning the Father's love. This is actually saying, a better translation would say something like, that the Father takes special delight in the Son's sacrifice. Jesus is saying that, The Father loves my mission. He loves what I'm doing. He loves my obedience. And I love obeying the Father. So, in other words, he's getting to this, the pinnacle, which will be the cross later on. He's setting that all up, and he's letting us know that there is love surrounding this cross event that's going to take place. Right? It wasn't divine child abuse. The Father punishes his son, right? No, no, no. There's divine love surrounding the cross. And notice his death, that Jesus' cross is not the end of it all, now we're told. The hints are getting, the light's growing brighter. 
He says, no, I, I lay down my life. Why? He says, that I may take it up again. This is the resurrection. And so notice what Jesus is doing so boldly. Even before the cross, even before his death, Jesus is predicting his resurrection. He's letting everyone know the plan. And once again, he's letting everyone know that he is in control, which is why he follows that by saying, I have authority to lay it down, my life, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. We've been reading this idea, as we close now, we've been reading this idea that the religious leaders kept trying to arrest Jesus. They kept trying to capture him because they wanted to kill him. And time and time again, they can't do it. Why? Because Jesus has authority over his life. Jesus has authority, he just says, over his death. And now we're told that Jesus has authority over his resurrection. Let's understand, oh, oh, the, the leaders of the Jews will eventually arrest and capture Jesus. They will. They'll find him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they will arrest him and capture him. And they will eventually kill Jesus. But in that, Jesus was not some helpless victim. No, he allowed it to happen in his timing. And according to God's plan, he lays down his own life and he takes up his own life again. So this is our good shepherd, church family. And again, this is what sets Jesus apart from every other leader, from every other world religion. Jesus came to lay down his life for us, his sheep. And because Jesus has abandoned his life, we can have an abundant life. There's nothing in the world like this good news. This Jesus knows us. He calls us. He, he leads us. He secures us. He frees us. He, he nourishes us. He is committed to us. He died for us. And he rose again victoriously for us. Our good shepherd has laid down his life for us. That we, that we may be part of the flock, the people of God. Praise God. Praise God for this good news. Praise God that for spiritually dependent people, there is a good shepherd. Amen? Let's pray together.